Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, I am Will Anderson from the title of the show and I have a very special guest here. Very excited to have her as a guest on this podcast, but as is the tradition, uh, we get our guests to introduce themselves. So, uh, guest, who are you? I am funny lady Judith Lucy Well, and thank you for having me. That is, see, this is why I ask people to introduce themselves because I just am so fascinated by what somebody says. Like whether you would just say Jude, Judith Lucy, yeah. Judith Lucy stand-up comedian, and I think it already says something that you you went with funny lady Judith Lucy. I guess it does. Hoist by my own petard. What right. have other people said? Oh uh, well, you know, some people just go like yeah, go straight to their job. I mean, job. Yes. I think. I think it's really interesting in our society is that like so often we define ourselves by what we do. Absolutely. You know, the first thing that you say, and even as stand-up comedians, you know, when you're doing crowd work, I just did a like a week of improv shows at the Sydney Comedy Store. And the first thing you say, what's your name? What do you do? Yeah, yeah. You know, you never say to them like, what's your name? What what, what are you actually passionate yes. about? Yes, what Tell, do you believe? Yeah, yeah. What gets you out of bed in the morning? No, it's true. And I guess because, you know, let's be honest, I've done a shitload of those kind of, hey, do a promo for the show, do a promo for the station. And that's that's my fallback is, hello, I'm funny lady Judith Lucy. So there you go. That's uh, just like, you know, tapping me on the knee and it jerks. We were in uh, Bali for Limo's wedding and it, it, it got in the, you know, the woman's just, day. Just and something else I wasn't invited to. <laughs> go on. Uh, Congratulations, Limo. <laughs> Whatever. He was uh, referred to in the articles in the newspaper that were about it, including one in the Daily Mail, which was the best bit of journalism I've ever seen in my life, where they took his Instagram photos and then they wrote a story as if they were there. It was so well done that you didn't realise they were just describing what was in the photos. That is class journalism right there. They described her dress. They described the rose petals on the floor. I'm like, this is really (laughs) evocative. Oh, no, hang on. They're describing a picture. But he was referred to as funny man Anthony Lehman and he did not know how he was meant to feel, like whether that was like a dig or whether that's like a, you know, just a description of what it is that you do. Do you think there is... my tip would be don't think about it. Right. (laughs) Uh, Just give it no thought whatsoever, Limo. Get on with your life and your happy, happy marriage. As long as it doesn't have the word alleged in front of it, I think. That's true. Yeah. That's, yeah, uh, that would be a slight. Okay, Judith Lucy, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I'm wrapped to have you on it. That's very kind. Uh, You did not know that I was going to ask you uh, if you had a philosophy. Uh, You only found that out when I I went downstairs to pick you up a minute ago. Yes. Uh, But I feel like hopefully we've filled in enough time that you can now answer my question. (laughs) (laughs) But let's give it a crack. Uh, So, Judith Lucy, do you have any philosophy? Now, uh, what basically what I'm uh, looking for here is like it could be to do with life Mm. or love or work, you know, the aforementioned work. And really the fact that the podcast is called Willosophy, I should have joined those dots but of course <laughs> no gave it no thought whatsoever it's not your job um, to solve mysteries no this is not it the isn't. enigma code i'm not angela lansbury right. um i do i have a philosophy by so the way course, if, if there's anyone in show business listening to this and you're looking for a reboot reboot of murder she wrote judith lucy as the new angela lansbury I can imagine you going... Can I tell you something? Bill Hunter, who um, I'm very privileged to say I, I knew, once said to me that I reminded him of the young Angela Lansbury. <laughs> now, Bill knew everybody. You know, he shared a house with Julie fucking Christie. You know, he knew everyone. And of all the people, he had to go with Murder, She Wrote. But, you know, so I was... 
I was a little disappointed with that, but thanks, Will. Let's keep that idea going. I am the new Angela Lansbury. Uh, Bill Hunter, I did not get to meet many times, but the time that I first met him is one of the most spectacular. You know when you – Bill Hunter, for those who don't know the international listers, a legendary mm. Australian actor, but also just kind of a, a legendary Australian yes. in everything that that means, you know. And uh, look, if anyone's offended by bad language, maybe you've come to the wrong podcast for a start, but secondly – particularly this next bit you might not be so fond of because I met him after the Actor Awards or the AFIs as they used to be called and uh, the show that I was doing at the time called The Glass House had just won an AFI award and so we're at the after party and uh, I've got the AFI award in my hand and Bill Hunter's there and I've never met Bill Hunter before and he comes up to me and he grabs the, the trophy out of my hands and he just says, I watch you every week, cunt. And I was like, that could not have been a more ultimate Bill Hunter moment. I was no. like, I'm not sure that we ne- that's the per- we don't yeah. need to. That's it. Goodbye. Walk away. Yeah. <laughs> Take How the you not put that on a t-shirt or a poster? <laughs> I have no clue. No. What a giant of a man. And I simply can't top that story, so I won't attempt to. Okay. Philosophy. Philosophy. Um. Look. I haven't got much. It's, you know, I did use your bathroom, not really because I had to, but because I was racking my brains to come up with something pithy uh, that would make me look smart yet deep and hilarious. And uh, I am old Mother Hubbard. That cupboard is bare. No, look, all I've got is, and you know, I think when I was younger, gee, Uh that's a good way to start a sentence. No, that's good. uh, You know, it was more, well, we're here for a a good time, not a long time. Uh And unfortunately, I'm still here. here. So <laughs> annoyingly, I've had And to... paying for some of the decisions that were oh, made early yes. on. yes. So I've had to recalibrate and... Um... We don't have to slow down for speed humps. We're not going to have this car in 15 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think that's really what my approach was, though. Right. I just didn't think that I'd be around. I mean, I didn't consciously think, well, I'll be dead. I won't make it to middle age. But now that I have, well, it's been quite sobering on many levels. Look, I've done a show on spirituality for Mm. the love of God. I've read a lot of shit. Uh, I've read some good shit too. And a lot of, um, look, all I've got... Yeah, okay, you tell me. All I've got is I know I'm a lot happier when I'm thinking less about myself and I'm living more in the moment. That's it. Right. Now, that's but that's a very interesting thing because it's very hard to live... In the moment. Now, there's a difference between what you said originally, which is what I think people confuse living in living the moment. moment. Woo That kind of right. yes, let's drink a slab of That's living like out. there's no tomorrow. Yes, which is a bit different to living in the moment. Yes, because that's the interesting thing. Now, I absolutely agree with you. Like all we have is right now. For good or for ill, everything yep. that's happened yep. already happened. Absolutely. So you can sit around worrying about it. Oh yeah. Or you can just go well. This is who I am right now and I need to play this moment out. But every moment comes also with the future still in it. You know, you know that the decision you make right now. Oh, yes, if you wanted to truly live in the moment, we could just go and like, why are we fucking doing this podcast? Like if we're truly living in the moment, let's empty our bank accounts and fucking go crazy. But that's oh, not really living in the no, moment. No, that's exactly right. Because, you know, if you really get into the, the living in the moment idea, it is... It is that I could find us sitting here saying nothing riveting. Right. 
Do you know what I mean? It's like that whole Buddhist idea of awareness, which is if we weren't clouded by all the shit in our mind and we could just sit here and appreciate everything from the carpet to whatever emotions going on in me to whatever thoughts are just going on in my head. If I could just sit here and be truly present with everything that was happening, I'd probably be having a ball. Right. I wouldn't have to go and empty my bank account. Yeah, so that's that's a very... Who knew I'd say this much wank this early on? <laughs> I thought I'd at least build up to it, but no, straight in. No, I think we dive in the deep end and then we pick it apart. I think that's how okay. I think that's how it works. Because, no, I mean, you're, you're, I mean, you're preaching to the choir in, uh, in a way when, when you talk to me about this. Sure. Because I think it has... Uh, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Like I'm 40 years old now and you start to think, like I was a bit like you. I just never really thought I'd have to be at 40 thinking, what am I going to be doing for the next 20 years? Yeah. I did something this year that I never thought I was going to do. Superannuation? Yes. (laughs) I contributed (laughs) voluntarily to my superannuation. Yeah. Because there's a part of me that suddenly thought, you know what? I have to start worrying about what I do when I don't work anymore. I might need... I know. I think for years I just thought superannuation, what was it? It, It's a great cartoon. Or it was something that was just super. Right. I I just never, ever thought it through. And uh, what is slightly depressing to me is that I am 46 Mm. and I am still yet to make a contribution to my superannuation. (laughs) So that has really made me take a good, long, hard look at myself, Phil Anderson. Well, it is one of those things though because you're suddenly like because you know i won't be able to access that money now until i'm 67 or probably by the time we retire like over 70 right so it is you kind of doing well would this amount of money be more helpful to me right now do i take the bet that like you know i might as well just spend it now and i won't worry about what happens after i'm 70 or am i like maybe i'm still going to be here when i'm 70 god but then does part of you also think but will i just keep working Will I just be Joan Rivers and just keep working until I drop? I'm interested in your perspective on that because I think people probably know mine, which is that I would love to be. Like I am definitely one of those people that – the, the deci- most of the decisions I make in my work life have – I've never really had a plan. Yeah. Like I don't know if you have. Let me ask you first. Have you ever had a plan? <laughs> no. Right. Never. Never. Neither have I. Never. Just people always ask, along. you must have goals or ambitions. Yep. No. Even going overseas, people say, oh, you, well, what are you looking to do in America? I'm like, I don't fucking know. Yeah. I don't know what I've been doing here. Yeah. I just keep doing stuff until people tell me to stop. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So I, am, I, I make a lot of my decisions based on basically, will this help me still be doing this forever? You know, I I would rather not take a big – I've turned down a bunch of things over the years that I've thought would be great right now but might mean when I'm, you know, 50, 60, 70, you know, that people aren't going to be interested in, like, listening to what I say and, you know, and and what I'm doing or that it won't be in the area that I want to be able to talk about or whatever, you know. And and that's about the only thing that I have is, like, you know, I just like to keep going and keep doing it. So you've never had, like, a plan – No, absolutely not. And the only thing that's changed for me is maybe it's just a variation on what you've said. When I, my first and only foray into commercial mainstream really was my disastrous time at Osterio. Mm -hmm. Me too. uh, (laughs) Yes, there's quite a club, isn't there? 
but that was, you know, and it's so annoying that as you get older too, you realise that, oh no, cliches really are cliches because they're true. Right. Because I did learn a lot from that failure. And that was the first time because, man, had I just stumbled along until I got that job doing breakfast radio uh, on Today FM in Sydney. The jewel in the crown, as I was often told. Uh, not by the time I'd finished with it. But um, <laughs> when I was quite unceremoniously sacked from that job, that really made me go for the first time, what am I doing? Right. I am just stumbling along saying yes to things. You know, that seemed like a good idea because, yes, of course, the money was the great. The money, outrageous. But, but also, also, no, I mean, well, I'll speak from my perspective. Please. Uh, and, and is that when you are offered those things, the promises that are made to you are that you'll be able to go in and do – and, you know, that Today FM Breakfast Show had – I mean, there was a couple of things. Firstly, it had been done by some very, very successful people for a very long time. So it's very hard to come in after anything like that. But the person who had been doing it, Wendy Harmer, was a wonderful stand-up comedian yeah. who has some real edge to her work. And certainly when she was doing stand-up, you know, back when I was watching The Big Gig, when I first was interested in stand-up, she was as good as any stand-up in oh, the country. Oh, absolutely. You know, brilliantly sharp. So there's got to be a part of you that thinks, well, Andrew Denton's done Breakfast Radio yes, on Triple Martin M. Yes, Martin Malloy were Martin doing, Malloy. you know, fantastic commercial radio. So I thought it is yeah, possible. it's possible. You can you go know, and make and something wonderful. Is that wonderful. what you basically thought? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. We'll go in. And to be honest, I think... We did make, like, some of the proudest work I've ever made in my entire life was during that Triple M show. We did things on that radio show that I'd never had the budget to do before and were just crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, we did a 25-part radio serial. Like, you know on radio they say if you're going to do a sketch, it's got to be like a minute. Yeah. Like, every episode was like four and a half minutes. It was, you had to have heard that day before to understand the next day. It was all a parody of commercial radio that we were playing on, it was called Black Thunderbelly. Right. And it was Underbelly about a guy who worked in the Black Thunders, right? Right. And it was, it's one of the most proud things I've ever done. Like, as a complete piece of work, you know, we put so much work into this thing. We... When we got sacked, there was an article in the newspaper that said that normally uh, when radio hosts got sacked, they started to phone in the show. So literally one day, Limo and I phoned in the show. I was in Brisbane and he was on the beach at Bondi and we made our guests go into the studio and we just hosted it on the phones, <laughs> phoning it in. We did stuff that I just loved, you know, yeah. stuff that made me laugh so fucking hard. But it just wasn't what they wanted yep. us to be doing. It wasn't. They said we could do that and they let us do that. But they didn't actually create an environment where that was what they wanted. Yes. That, I think that was the difference. I think it's a bit different when you're doing breakfast because that's a whole different beast again. Of course, we weren't actually <laughs> sacked until they moved us to drive. That oh, was right. That was the... Yeah, Eased you out. <laughs> that was the fun. Oh, you know what? It is such a tedious story and I'm just not going to go into it again. But I, I think the short version of it is that there was someone in there that really backed me right. and um, he may or may not be now connected to Boost Juice. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so at, uh, I think Boost Juice was well on its way by that stage. So I think he had a very relaxed attitude and right. just sort of went go for it. And he was an incredible supporter, Jeff Ellis. Um, and when Jeff And went, you can also work at any Boost Juice you want for the rest of your life. I may be there by the end of the month. But um, he, yeah, when he left, I think the people that were left right. decided, gee, it's time for her to go. So, yeah, look, similarly, apart from uh, two incidents that stay with me, the first being that I did a television ad which involved me dancing with a purple animated hippopotamus, <laughs> that and going into the Australian Idol household, which will give you an idea of how long ago it was, oh, 
they all used to live in a big house back then. I forgot that. Apart from those two moments, I can generally hold my head up high as well. Like, you know, it was myself, Peter Hellier and Kaz Cook, and I think we did some really funny stuff too. But, you know, I think three people listened to it. But anyway, at, sorry. No, go on. I just, well, I wanted to talk about the idea of being sacked because that's something that people uh, – Listen, you know, who listen to the podcast when other people have talked about it have responded to they they like the idea of like how you like found out you probably weren't going to go back to your job how you reacted at the time how you deal with that sort of thing like and I think that was going into the area you were talking about anyway about how it made you start to make your own decisions and say what am I doing so can you talk us through some absolutely. of that absolutely and the, the hilarious thing was that when we were doing breakfast I mean oh my goodness me the ratings were appalling right. so it was one of those things uh, that I swear to God I expected to be sacked every single week right. like no question I was being written about in the paper because they do seem to write about that sort of stuff in Sydney in a different way than they do Definitely. in Melbourne it's you a know, sport yes like in Melbourne they would have written about it in the entertainment section, you know, in the Green Guide. But in Sydney, in Sydney, I was being slagged off in the real estate section, <laughs> which is, oh, well, that's great. How in the real estate section? Oh, not that I've, you know, I've been deeply <laughs> wounded by these lines, but um, no wonder Lucy's only renting in Sydney. <gasps> oh, oh, yeah. Oh so, yeah, that was just <laughs> really delightful. So, yeah, really Expected that, was amazed when it didn't happen. Got to the end of the year, Jeff took me out for lunch and basically said to me, you know what, you can keep chipping away at breakfast, Um, eventually it might work. Or he said, you know what, you might not be cut out for breakfast. Do you want to go back to Melbourne and do National Drive instead? That took about two and a half seconds. Yeah, I was going to say, you you were like, I'm ringing you from the plane. Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) Thanks for picking up the tab, Jeff. And, you know, Kaz and Peter Hellier felt exactly the same way. So, yeah, that was great. And then, as I say, and, you know... uh, the ratings were going fine. We were going up. It, you know, Jeff became the person that we answered to directly. It was actually, I can honestly say, I was actually having Happy, fun. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, and then Jeff left and six weeks later, completely out of the blue, um, my then partner uh, picked me up from work and said, uh, Said, oh God, it must have been a while ago because it must have been a, a message on an answering machine. <laughs> said uh, something along the lines of, that's right, my birth mother had been staying. Oh, getting a lot of unnecessary detail here, but my birth mother had been staying with me. And you know, family's terrific. It's great to have them stay. It's better to say goodbye. Right. Let's be honest. So I was delighted that she was leaving. And I remember saying to Colin, my then partner, I said, oh, isn't it great? We're going to have a night on our own. And he said, yes, but um, Kevin. Our manager, Will, he said, Kevin's coming over. And as close as Kev and I are, yep. he didn't He's usually, not a pop around guy. No, not He's in not the middle nudge. of the week. So I immediately uh, just had that sinking feeling in my stomach. He, Kev then rang me and I said, so is it just me or is it the whole show? 
Uh, he basically just said, oh, I'm coming around. He didn't really answer me. Uh, I don't need to say the language warning because you already have. I opened the door. Kev had a bottle of wine in each hand and said, it couldn't be more cunty. They've sacked you and Kaz and they're keeping Peter Hellier. And God bless oh Pete. God. When he found out, he actually said, wasn't I good enough to be sacked? Which is very nice of him. And then Mer- Mercifully, because sometimes, as you would know with commercial radio, they say, well, we're sacking you, but we want you to be on air for six more weeks. Mm -hmm. This was only, I think this was a Wednesday. We had two more shows to do. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. The one we did on Thursday, we were blind drunk. Uh, We went out for lunch, all of us. And Kaz isn't a drinker, I think. Even Kaz was a bit tipsy. Pete and I were just four sheets to the wind and on on the Friday too I feel that we were at least a little bit pissed, not quite as drunk um, uh, no one in upper management approached me no one spoke to me I remember someone, because I was still happily smoking, I think I'd gone outside to have a cigarette and maybe someone sort of just below upper management came up and said something to me. But generally speaking, no one dealt with me directly. And I think... I think the final part of the kiss off, which I I loved so much for its class, was that some of the people that worked in the station came in after the last show and gave me a box of Cadbury Roses chocolates. So it is really the gift for any occasion. Um, and yeah, then I went home and I did do a stand-up show about it all called simply I Failed, exclamation mark. And I think one of the opening lines to that show was that for the next three and a half months, I drank myself a new asshole, And I, I did. I was just drunk. But when I sobered up, that's when I went, maybe it's time to not have a plan, but to look at what you're doing with your work. I mean, obviously, you want to keep doing comedy. Maybe it's time to actually start doing work that you feel quite passionate about. So that's kind of my rule of thumb now. So that's when I wrote- Okay, that's good. Now, uh, and I could not agree with you more. It's exactly where I am in my life. I was talking to someone online the other day. You know, funnily enough, I think some people don't really know how to use the internet yet. And this guy was like, he was like on Twitter and he'd like said to his followers that he was going to like get get Will Anderson to block him, right? And I was like, you know, I can read this, right? Like if you're going <laughs> to, you know, it's so anyway, he started like, like throwing this like vitriol my way, you know, and I would normally just like, you know, block it or ignore it or whatever. Yeah. But I just thought that's what he wants, right? Yeah. So instead, like it's, it's my other favorite thing to do is if someone is really, really mean to me online, like they say, oh yeah, you're so, oh, good on you. You're so fucking edgy and like so fucking funny and you don't know so much about everything. I will respond as if I actually thought it was a compliment. Like, so I'll just go, but I'm like, oh, thanks so much, man. Like yeah. I do my best and I just try to, yeah. and it does, it just confuses the shit out of people. So this day I just decided I would like, he would, he, the invective would come my way and I would respond, you know, just a completely yep. rational manner. And I would just talk to him about the, because he, he said, well, you've never made me laugh. You're not a comedian. And I said, mate, I, I absolutely expect I have never made you laugh. I mean, most people I've never made laugh. Like there are some people who like what I do enough that I am a comedian. I've not had another job for 20 years and I'd rather just make them laugh. Yeah. I don't need to make everybody laugh. That's the the bit you get to where you're like, I mean, you have such a wonderful audience. 
Like I've sat in the audience of your shows and they are, you know, they're the people that you want to spend your time with. I bet if you walked out on stage and you looked at your audience and thought, if I got trapped, if this was the end of the world and I got trapped in this room, I would be able to hang out with these people and we would like, you know, get along and, you know. That's it a be- really nice thing to say. I Look, and yes, I have to say, I, I, that's one of the things I feel incredibly lucky about because I do really like my audience. Right. I do like hanging out with them. You know, if I bump into people and, you know, they want to have a drink, that's kind of great because most of them are just really nice people. I don't, hey, I don't know how that's happened, but, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a sympathy thing. But, um, they are generally very nice people. But I wanted to, I wanted to throw something in, and then I wanted to ask you okay. something. That whole idea of, um, yes, taking it up to people in terms of, uh, not that's not what they'll expect. Because when I first started doing stand up, I just used to get heckled very, very badly. I don't know that people heckle in Australia anyway the way they used to. 20-odd years ago. No, I don't think so. And anyway, but yes, when guys would abuse me, the best way of dealing with it was always to walk off stage, sit in their lap and, you know, go, I cannot believe I've met Mr. Right. Right. Because that would just freak the fuck out of them because it was like, what do you do with that? Right. But what I wanted to talk to you about was I have to say, uh, look, you know, part of it's laziness. Uh, but I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter, but I have to admit part of it too is because I don't want to read that stuff. Yeah. I don't want to read the, the nasty stuff. And I know there are people out there that despise me, but I right. really love burying my head in the sand about that. I, I mean, that's an interesting uh, perspective. And because I, I, my general philosophy about, and often young comedians particularly are very vulnerable to that. You know, you've just started and you don't have that confidence of, you know, I have the confidence of when somebody says to me, you're not a comedian, to go, well, you know what? Like, I have a house by the harbour that Joke's built. I'm yeah, probably a yeah. comedian. Like, you know, you, you don't have to like me. But, yes. but you know, if you're young and you're still going, can I be this thing and this is my dream and people are being, you know, aggressive to you in that way, then, yeah, kids do, like younger comedians do really get freaked out by it. And I always say to them, just think of whoever you love the most in the world and you think is the most beloved person in the world that nobody hates. And then Google the words, I hate that person yeah. and see what comes up and it'll be the exact same shit that people are writing to you. It happens to everybody. It doesn't mean that if it catches you at the wrong time, you know, that that it's not going to hurt you. And the right, you know, some people might just strike a chord. Right, of course. And look, I mean, I'm not invulnerable to criticism. Like, as I always say, the only criticism that should hurt is the criticism that you know is right. Yes. Like, no other criticism should hurt. Like if somebody else, if someone's having a go at you for something that you know is not true, then that criticism should not hurt you. But the ones that hurt is occasionally when somebody like, you know, is like, I didn't like you tonight because you were too drunk. And you were like, I wasn't too drunk. And then you're kind of like, well, maybe I was a little bit too drunk. (laughs) But I think, see, the logical part of me knows all of that. Uh And I, you know, like I don't really read reviews either for for the same reason. I'll read, like when I wrote a book, I read the reviews because I thought, well, I haven't written a book before. I should, you know, people writing these reviews probably know a hell of a lot more about writing books than I do. So I I did read those reviews. 
But when it comes to stand-up, I go, you know what? I've been doing this for 26 years now. I've got a pretty good idea when something's working and something's not working. And I find that the audience is the best way of gauging that anyway. So, yeah, I generally don't bother with reviews unless, you know, I have discovered that either – a really bad review or a really good review will find its way to you one way or another too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, well-meaning friends will go, oh, fuck, did you see that? Oh, no, don't, don't worry about it. It was fine. You know, you'll hear about it. So I'm quite happy not to go out of my way to read those reviews. Uh, my uh, my girlfriend does not uh, watch the news, right? And her attitude is very similar to that, like in regard to the news. She said, look, most of the news is depressing. Why would I want to watch it? She goes, I don't need to know it. Yeah. And it's depressing. And she said, if it's good enough or bad enough, I'll find out about it anyway because they're the things that everybody talks about. And yeah. I said, well, what if somebody doesn't tell you? And she goes, you'll fucking tell me. Yeah, <laughs> I was good like, point. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Between the two of us, I am reading the newspapers. It's fine. But, but I I'm, do I'm – I've become one of those people that – I think partly through necessity, like things like online for me, like – Twitter and stuff like that has just been a very effective way for me to be able to travel and promote my gigs and yep. let people know where I'm on. So if you're going to be there for that, my my attitude is if I'm there for that, then I have to take, you know, whatever yeah, negative comes with that. You know, that's just the opportunity cost of the thing that I've decided sure. that I'm going to do. But what I guess I'm trying to do, and it goes to your point of like trying to live in the moment, is, you know, that Rudyard Kipling thing of like t- treating, you know, both – you know, the, the compliments and the absolute negatives, both as, you know, strangers. Those, that idea that neither of those things are really true. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. And so being able to take on board negative criticism or vitriol and just kind of say, okay, even if it hurt me for a minute, now I'm done with that, my life goes on. Yeah. And, and the same with positive stuff because I think that, you know, believing your own hype or thinking that you're as good as you could ever be or any of those sort of things are also – not good for you, you know, will keep you in. So I just now, I used to be a person who wouldn't read them. I used to be a person who would try to, and now I'm just like, you know what? I just take it all in and all out and try not to let any of it kind of affect who I am and what I am and, you know, where I am at right now. Well, you are further down the road than I, Will Anderson, because I know despite all of the, you know, Buddhism stuff I'm spouting, I absolutely know that I can take things ridiculously personally, right. even even though logically I know that's insane. Where do you get feedback from? Like uh, if you, uh, you know, I mean, and I don't think reviews are the place to get that sort of feedback, but do you have somebody that you consult? Do you have someone that you bounce ideas off do you have someone who if you're not sure about something you say can you come and have a look at this script or stand in the back of the room or is it all just you and i really i just have faith in the audience yeah i guess i oh look obviously i've got i've got friends (laughs) Um, (laughs) really and uh and you know i respect their opinion a great deal and you know they've been coming to see me for a long time and so i will certainly listen to what they've got to say but i guess again when it comes to stand-up i remember like the first few years i used to do that tell me about that i would love to know what your first few years tell me set the scene a little uh, about when you first started and what the scene was like Ah, look, for starters, uh, so I just moved over from Perth. Mm -hmm. I could not have been more green as a person. I mean, so I moved to Melbourne when I was 20. I knew one person. She was kind of my best friend from Curtin University in WA. 
Um, I was still a virgin. I mean, who cares? But it's just to give you an idea of like, I just didn't know anything about anything. I moved to Melbourne, um, as a lot more people back then did. I actually wanted to be an actor. Mm. That didn't really pan out. Um, I did. Comedy was somehow all my, always my plan B and I was – I don't know how looking back. I was dimly aware of the fact that a lot of comedy was coming out of Melbourne. So I came here. I, I will always remember the very first time I, I walked into The Last Laugh. Like I'd never even been to a theatre restaurant. So right. I just thought it was <laughs> incredible. Hang on. There's entertainment and food? What? This? You know, the waiters were wacky, you know. And I remember um, the irony was that because I had wanted to go to VCA yeah. and didn't get in. And, of course, all of the waiters and waitresses were worked drama to, students. Yeah. So, like, Reese Muldoon worked there. Alison White worked there. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So, I, just uh, we'll cite and we'll get back to this, but it's uh, the first time I ever saw comedy was at The Last Laugh. I was 15 years old. Wow. And my friends and I had fake IDs because it was like, you know, they served alcohol there so you had to be over 18 we came down uh, from the country on the train to see Jamoan because oh we'd God. seen him on the big gig yes I and was going to say he's done, was he did his uh, seagulls don't have you know you bros oh, yeah. we would repeat that routine and then we found out he was on at the last laugh so we've got our fake IDs and we've caught the train and of course we know nothing about anything yeah. you know so we've got there at like 7 for a 9 o'clock show or whatever so there's just all these kids in their pretend suits drinking but they let us drink and <laughs> It's you know, so, the last laugh for you. And we didn't understand uh, how a comedy night worked. Yeah. You know, we just thought it would be Jamoan. Like, you know, and so there was uh, like a host and two support acts and then Jamoan. So do you remember who they were? Yeah, I do. And this is why it's worth telling this story. Because <laughs> we're just sitting there like spoiled kids, you know, sipping our like margaritas, you know, going, oh, no, we just wanted to see Jamoan. I wanted to see this other mm. bullshit. The first one was a very good friend of mine still, a guy called Steph Torek, but was doing his character Pasha. Pasha. Yeah. Then two guys that I had never heard of, but apparently were making some waves on the Melbourne comedy scene. Uh, Tony Martin, then Mick Malloy. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's a shame they never went on to do much. And even then, like I remember the takeaway from the night was Tony was just like, I mean, made us laugh yeah. in a way that, you know, we just, we were like, who is this guy? And what is he it was you know, just brilliant, brilliant. So uh, anyway, go on. The, you walked into the last laugh. And every, yeah. I reckon the first show I saw was um, Mark Trevorrow as Bob Down doing Pick a Hit with Gina Riley as oh Coralie Hollow and Pete Rose Thorne as the DJ. So <laughs> I just went... This is the best night of my entire life. <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was fantastic. Right. And I lived in Fitzroy, which is which was very near the last laugh. And so yeah, I just started going to see comedy all the time. And you know, I so I saw like the found objects there, I saw the Cabbage Brothers there, I saw the Natural Normans, which of course was Denise Scott, Linda Gibson, Sal Upton. And was most Granger. of the stuff at that time, you know, that collaborative sort of like almost sketch comedy on stage stuff? Or there, was there a lot of like just solo stand-up stuff as well? Well, it was the whole gamut. Right. And I think that's what I loved. So, you know, one minute you'd see Liz Sadler playing
playing the saw and the next minute you'd see Harry who didn't doing right. some zany <laughs> magic. You know, so it was it was all of that. And it was, the, there were a lot of groups. But, you know, uh, I noticed uh, Marty Putz was in town not that long ago. I remember going nuts for Putz back then. <laughs> so it was just something for everyone and a lot of straight stand-ups. You know, I'm sure I saw Rachel Berger there yep. pretty early on. I'm sure I saw Greg Fleet there pretty early on. So Anthony Morgan. And I got to the point where I started to think – Maybe I could do this. Now, were you making friends with these people at the time? Oh, good were you God, in no. The, no, you were just no, going as a... absolutely not. And in fact, I do remember a couple of unbelievably embarrassing things that I did when I was 20, 21. The first was I remember being at the Veggie Bar on Brunswick Street in Fitzroy with my friend Audrey and going, oh my God, the found objects are And I'd seen them on Hey Hey It's Saturday. And I thought they were hilarious. And I think I actually followed Frank when they left, Frank Woodley, when they left... uh, Because for people who don't know, the founder objects were Colin Lane, Frank Woodley and uh, Scott. Scott. Oh my who God, went to teach? Didn't he go to teach in the Northern Territory he or something? He did. Alice Springs. Alice Springs. Yeah. Um, that will come back to me, I'm sure. But yeah. so yes, went on to become yes. Lane on Woodley. But People anyway, Lane on Woodley. I went. Uh, basically, then I sort of tailed them on Brunswick Street, and when Frank was at the ATM, I went up to him and I actually said, "My name's Judith Lucy, and I've just come over from Perth, and I think I might want to be a stand-up comedian." And unbelievably, you know, well, not now that I know Frank, he couldn't have been nicer. And was like, "Oh, Colin Scott." and the news agent. Do you want to meet them? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so that happened. I saw Rod Quantock in a news agent. It was all happening for me right. at, at news agencies. Yeah. Um, I went up to him, the uh, one in Clifton Hill, gave him the same spiel. Not only was he incredibly friendly, he gave me his home phone number <laughs> and said, if you ever want any help. I never used it, right. of course, but... So I was running around doing things like that and also then I got a job. You were like, you were like Commissioner Gordon. You were the only person who had a direct line to Captain Snooze. <laughs> We've got a sleep emergency. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that was a number people wanted back then, don't you worry. But um, but of course I'd seen him on Australia standing out right. and I you know, thought he was amazing as well. So and I, also something you have to understand, and you would understand this coming from a country town, growing up in Perth the weatherman was a celebrity. Right. Well, like, even still today, like when you go to Perth, they have their own celebrities that aren't celebrities anywhere else yes. in the country and they call them Perthanalities. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus yeah. Christ, I wish that wasn't true. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember like going to the Astor Cinema and seeing Mark Seymour from Hunters and Collectors right. like the first week I was here and again, losing my fucking mind and just going, oh my God, you see people off the telly walking around here. Right. So, you know, I was just overawed by all of it. Okay, but yeah, so that, that's an interesting perspective to me is that the idea of starting something as a fan of it. You know, like, I mean, I think that a lot of people who are comedians, well, at least from a certain era, I, it's a bit hard to tell now. I mean, mm. obviously, I'm not starting now. Sometimes I think because there's so many people doing it now, there's probably a – and because people now can do comedy as a career option. Yes. Like, people can see a really solid, I'll do this and then I'll do this and then I'll do this. And I still feel even when I started 20 years ago, it had an element of you're running away, join the circus. Absolutely. And if I had, you know, told Sister Aileen at Santa Maria Ladies College that that was what I was going to do, I mean, she would have sent me to a psychiatric ward. It was not seen as a career. It was certainly not seen 
as a job, that's for sure. But when the acting fell through, I was enough of a wanker that I knew I wanted to keep performing. And I was always, the reason I wanted to go to VCA was because in their little blurb, they said they encourage you to make your own work. And I was always attracted to that. And the thing I never liked about acting was this idea of auditioning and waiting for the phone to ring. Right. So I always liked the idea. And then having to do someone else's. I mean, I have so many friends who are actors and – the great thing about being a comedian is you, if, if you're not getting any work, you just have to make make something up in your head and put it on. And but also, all you need is a microphone. if it's good and bad, it's your own fault. Whereas Absolutely. I've like I have friends who are great actors, but who are in terrible, terrible yes. shows because they have to pay their bills. And you're like, ah, oh, but you know that 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 must not be you know rewarding. You you want to anyway. So well, no, it's summed up for me by a story that I it could be apocryphal, but you know I, I think when you hear it, you'll go, oh no, that's true, uh, because it does involve Greg Fleet, <laughs> and he was in a production of The Tempest. Also, the the thing about Fleet is that it's impossible to defame him because he doesn't remember half of the shit. Well, either, so. but I think he'd be pretty happy with this story <laughs> okay, anyway. Cool. So he's in a production of The Tempest. He's playing the fool. And one night he's delivering his monologue and he doesn't get many laughs. So apparently at the end of it he actually said, hey, I didn't write this shit. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's how you feel. And I, I know like Frank Woodley has done theatre and had a similar, I don't think he's actually said that, right. but had a similar thing of, oh, God, you know, you kind of want to, if something's not working or if you don't like the script, you do want to step out and say, this isn't really working, is it? Which you can do, of so, course, if you're I, a I'm going to say that he would have done that because yes. I'm going to tell you why. I, I've only really acted, and I won't even call it acting, but I've only done it once. I've never had any interest in it. But years ago when I first started out, they were doing that, you know, production of Midsummer Night's Dream oh, they yep, do in the yep. park. And they cast, you know, there were cast comics in it to play like the lesser roles. So Corinne Grant was in it and Fleety was in it and I was in it. And so Fleety and I had a lot of scenes together, you know, and uh, – he would outrageously improvise in these scenes. And often then he'd forget his li- His biggest trick, and he had to be really aware of it, was that if Fleety forgot one of his lines, which would happen more often than you would think, he would just turn to the person who was closest to him and just go, what sayest thou? <laughs> and- <laughs> of course. Uh, so I, I, I am interested in, you said you always wanted to be a performer. Why do you think that was? Where did that come from? Um, I, just to finish that thought, oh, I was going to say, just yes. seeing a lot of those acts of The Last Love, I was so struck by how clearly people were making up their own shit. Mm-hmm. And that was really appealing to me. Yeah. Why did I want to be an actor? That is a mystery, right. Will Anderson, because it's certainly, you know, my father was an accountant. My mother was not really allowed to do much. So she, she just sat at home and had eating disorders. Um, I am adopted, of course. So the only wild card is I don't know who my father is. So maybe it was Bill Hunter. I don't know. <laughs> but seriously, I have no idea where it came from. I mean, you know. Best episode I... of Where Did You Come From Ever? Yeah. Gee, that would have been ace. But, you know, um, if I wanted to do Pop Psychology 101, I would probably go, My parents didn't pay me enough attention. <laughs> And there was a lot of look at me, look at me, look at me, and them simply looking elsewhere. And uh, by the time I realised that, and of course becoming a performer and becoming, you know, reasonably successful at what I did made no difference whatsoever. Uh, But, you know, by the time I worked that out, thankfully I enjoyed what I was doing. So that was okay. But what about you? 
Uh, I, look, you know what? That's an interesting question. I, I, I think that, you know, one of my favorite, uh, you know, little pop psychology sort of quotes is, you know, that you, you've got to know what you're running to or what you're running from, mm. right? And, you know, and often it can be both in the same moment. But I, I think about that a lot in regards to, like, the origin story of what I do. Why do I do what I do? You know, like, my da- my dad's a farmer, my granddad's a farmer, my brother's a farmer. You know, why is that not what I'm doing mm. right now, you know? And, I mean, I, I, I don't think it was the – I mean, I was the first kid, like, and you're on a farm. So, I guess you do have a lot of time by yourself, you know, to just, like, you know, with your own imagination and having to kind of make up things and those sort of things. But I think mostly for me it was, like, I just didn't want to live my life on that one road. Yeah. And I was looking for some way to get out of there. But, God, there were a lot of ways you could have gotten out of there. Right. I, know, but I loved comedy. I think, you know, for me – no, he's okay – so the first – when I really fell in love with comedy, when I first, like, noticed comedy, I remember that very specifically because we only had two TV networks, right? We had the ABC and we had, like, a Southern Cross, which was, like, a composite channel of, like, you know, some other commercial networks and that sort of thing. And that's all we had. And we mostly watched the ABC, right? And so there was two shows that came along. Now, I was familiar with shows like Australia, You're Standing In It and The Gillies Report and, you know, some of that stuff, but it was – I was – just a little bit young yes, to kind this of. This is where me being six years old. Right. Comes just in that play. zone. Yeah. For me, when it really hit me, it was two shows in particular Andrew Denton's The Money or the Gun and The Big Gig. Those two shows just completely changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. A 14 year old kid sitting on the farm going. And it, what, it, what it was, was yes, the comedy was brilliant. But for me, it was like, oh, they, I think these things. Right. Like this is the way I look at the world. Okay. And this is not what my friends say about gay people or this is not what my friends say about disabled people. But like I kind of like agree with this guy on the telly Mm. and how he's saying it and I suddenly like, oh, so you can say these things if you're funny. People will let you say these things and have these opinions if you can make these opinions funny. So that's definitely – I can remember that. And I remember, like, taking that through, like, high school when I guess, you know, I had that sort of anti-authoritarian streak. If I had one thing that defined me, it was just, and probably still to this day, is that I am naturally suspicious of unearned authority, you know. And that's probably the one defining thing that I just don't have time for ties and bullshits and Mm. titles. And I was getting angry. Someone was the other day was talking about how cute Prince George is. And I was like, and I said, but don't you think it's ridiculous that that tiny little fat kid, cute kid don't get me wrong mm-hmm. who can't wipe his own fucking ass yet is gonna be the constitutional head of our country and like i just find that stuff bullshit because he fell out of the right vagina yeah you know what i mean yeah like we I don't live we don't live in the hobbit anymore yeah are we still having kings yeah like a baby comes out and we fucking hold it in the air like fucking simba and we're yeah. all meant to be like bow down to the ki- like it's 2015. Have we not moved on from magic and goblins and yeah, shit? Yeah, no, that amazes me. So that still is something that, you know, defines me. Like, you know, sometimes when people have a go at me for like what, what I'll say about politics or politicians or whatever, and they'll think you're biased. But for me, it's always been anti-authority. You kick up, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so that definitely came from those shows and that carried through what I did. So I guess I fell in love with that then and then I kind of got more broadly interested in comedy out of that the interesting thing for me was that in my lifetime you know if you if you'd said to me at 14 you know these two things these two things that are most instrumental in my story uh ted robinson who yeah produced the big gig was the first person who gave me my first tv gig yeah. which was uh with good news Week, 
And then he was the producer of my show, The Glass House. Mm-hmm. And then Andrew Denton it was the producer who gave me my who gave me Gruen and was the producer of that. I mean, the two people who kind of really most influenced me doing it have been the two people I've spent the majority of my adult working life working with. Which I mean, is kind of. I don't know. I don't know what that means. It's just oh, you know, the universe works in strange and mysterious ways. Will, um, so when you decided to get into comedy, I mean, where you are now, is this what you thought it would be like? I, look, I said this to somebody, uh, and I'd like your perspective on this as well. Um, about I've, I want to say this without. This is not meant to be sounding arrogant. I want to be as honest as possible I can be about this. I've just I've achieved more than I could have ever reasonably expected. Mm. Like if you'd asked me when I first started out, like I would have been happier with half of what's happened. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm not happier, but I would have been happy with. Yeah. You know, if you told me at the start that half of what's happened to me would happen, I would have been wrapped. So there was kind of a point where that stuff I just stopped thinking about it. Yeah. You know, you're kind of like, well, I don't really need to achieve. I, I, I got to be a comedian. I got to do the thing that I want to do. Like, I, it's done. No one, I, I, like, I've, yeah, I've done it for 20 years. I, this year is my 20th year in a row at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm. Whatever else happens, if I stop doing comedy, like, on April 20, like, this year, I will have done 20 years in a row at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm. I did comedy. Like, I did it. It's done. Like, I mean, as in, like, you know, I got to do what I wanted to do. What's your perspective on that? Where are you at in your world and your life in regard to that sort of thought? I mean... What were your aims and ambitions? Did you have some? Do you feel like they didn't... Like, do you have new ones? Like, where does it... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I feel a bit the same way. Uh, And I suppose I had little moments where... Because another thing that I watched as a kid and was a huge fan of was the D-Generation. Right. And, you know, so the first time I had Rob Sitch call me up, it was like, I can't believe this is real. You know, I never thought I would ever work with people like that. So that was a moment. And I also was um, obsessed with Andrew Denton. So I remember, I think, apart from... Maybe I I appeared on the big gig once, but just before I started doing The Late Show, I did one of those debates with Andrew Denton. And that was another moment for me where I just went, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm here. Uh, You know, I... I can't believe that uh, I, I obviously gave up on acting and I realised that I was never going to be a very good actor. So the fact that I was in two feature films, you know, that I was in Crackerjack, which was a really successful Australian yeah, film. one of the best Australian films and most successful Australian films of all time. And, you know, got to drink with Bill Hunter. Right. Uh, you know, again, pinch me. Uh, so, and I, you know, I, I did play a 55-year-old racist pub, um, pub owner in the Sapphires as well, which was a, an unexpected <laughs> a, bonus. And also a huge hit movie. Uh, so I go, what? And, you know, I've written two books. How did that happen? I, you know, I've just made a second series for the ABC. Like you, um, I could stop tomorrow. And ju- the fact that I have made a living out of it, for over 20 years, similarly, I just go, what the fuck? I never thought that would happen. Right. So then how do you take that moment and channel it into, like, you know, your new projects? Like, when you 
you go, you know, decide I'm going to make a series for the ABC. How do you go? What, you know, how do you decide what you want to talk about and what you're passionate about? Maybe let's talk about the new show because that probably is a good place to springboard off, right? Sure. I'm here to speak about the new show, and I will say the thought of it still makes me feel a little ill. Ooh. But let's let's go there. Okay, well, let's uh, do it first here. I like this. This is an exclusive. It, it is an exclusive. So it's called Judith Lucy's All Woman, and it. Uh, I'm going to ask you a similar question in a second. But uh, uh, what often happens with me, like it did with the spirituality show and so it did with this, was something just starts off in the back of my mind and it just becomes something that I think about more and more and more. Okay. And for the seed for this show was a conversation I had with Kaz Cook where we were talking about feminism, basically, and we both said... Wow, in the 80s. Well, I think it was Kaz who said, in the 80s I thought feminism was going to have a linear narrative, that things were just going to get better and better and better for women. And I hate to break it to people. I don't think that's happened. Come on. I know. Um, you're right, and I'm just off to have an operation on my labia before I go to my pole dancing class. <laughs> but uh, oh no, surely that's the wrong order. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you good don't wanna, point. You don't want to go to pole dancing straight after labia reconstruction <laughs> that, that surgery. That is true. Judith. That is true. I know how to make my own. Lucky, fun. there's a man here to tell you what to do. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, I guess became fascinated with the fact that obviously, in so many ways, women have gone. My God we've really gone forward, but I was fascinated by the fact that in many ways we seem to have really gone backwards. So I just wanted to make a show looking at ladies in Australia today um, that, uh, yeah, just looking at that. So it's it's six it's parts. A, okay, so this is an interesting idea in general because I think it is very much in the zeitgeist at the moment. I think that – That's my middle name, Will. Is it? Yes. That's right, Judith's zeitgeist, Lucy. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's a hell of a lot more interesting than Mary, so let's go with zeitgeist. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the virgin zeitgeist. Mm. <laughs> um, so it, I think that I, – I mean, I've got a couple of theories on this, but I think that certainly the internet – so this is a place where, you know, you look at your Facebook and your Twitter and the things that can be really positive about those things is yep. that traditionally uh, women have – the only voices that women get in the media are voices that have been approved by men who are running the big media companies. Yes. So even if you can point to like women in the media, the access they were given to just express what they wanted to express was still at least funneled or limited through, you know, a, a, you know, a broader prism, you know. The internet has meant that, you know, that every woman can have a voice. And it turns out that when every woman has a voice, all these horrible stories that you think might be one-offs mm. turned out to have happened to yes or women, you know? Yes, yes. And so it's been kind of a wonderful time, even for me, because I was talking to a friend about, about what my approach to those things had been. And it was very much that just to listen, you know, you've got to listen because all these people can't be making this shit up. Like they haven't all got together and gone, let's all, you know, come up with the the same stories about yeah. things. So all we can do right now is just listen to what people are saying. Don't re- feel the need to respond. Don't feel the need to think it's about you or, you know, like you can still be a great person, but if you're living in a world where the people we're sharing our world with all have these common stories that we were not aware of or I'd like to think I was aware of it. Mm. Like I'd like to, I, I I like to think you know I'm aware of the idea that you know it's dangerous for a woman to walk to a car at night. But then when you hear all your friends going, you know, I carry my keys in my hands every time I go. You're like, oh, right, that's your whole fucking life, mm. all the time. 
And in doing that, I think there's been this big establishment backlash towards the word feminine. Like the amount of times in the last six months, you've seen women who are clearly feminists by the definition of feminism. Yeah. Well, as I understand it, that you just, you know, believe that men and women should have the equal right to. Uh, That's how I see it. Right. But that's, I mean, that's what it is. Yes. I'm a feminist because I believe that no, you know, and in the same way as I think that gay people should better get married because I don't think that the way you're born should have an effect on the opportunity you have to share equal rights. It's mm. very simple. And these women who are successful women who are clearly feminists, people who, you know, run their own companies or, you know, have very successful jobs and get paid the same as men and, and then say, oh, you know, but I wouldn't say I'm a feminist. I'm like, how did the establishment manage to make that such an ugly word that people who are clearly feminists are afraid to say that they're feminists. And it's that's a- episode one right, right there. <laughs> I, you don't need to watch the first episode. Just You know what? The first one's kind of boring. The second one's all about dating. Just tune in for that one. But no, I mean, you're exactly right. And I find it alarming that that is the case, that um, – <sighs> And of course you don't notice. If you're a white, straight male, the world is your oyster. Right. Why on earth would you notice? Because if you're not living with this stuff every single day, then it's, it's, it, it's impossible for it to be part of your worldview because, I mean, I feel that it's something I get – I've just made a show about it, but mm. I, I can also get really sick of talking about it. Of course. Because- I mean, I imagine over the years you've had to – Talk about women oh in comedy. My God. Like, if I have to answer that question right. one more time, I will transition. Well, because- my, my favourite uh, answer to it is by an Australian comedian who now works in the UK. Her name's Beck Hill, and she's a wonderful young comedian. And uh, she said, uh, "Now I, I, I want to get this absolutely right." And uh, she said, uh, "She just tweeted, and I thought it was the perfect response." They said, "What's it like being a female comedian?" She said, "It's just like being a male comedian, except you get asked that a lot more." And I thought, yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> that is a very good response, right. which I now may have to steal. Yep. <laughs> I just reword slightly. Uh, but yeah, look, but, but it is true. But it is the stuff you're talking about. It is stuff like I will. But it, I, I, as a woman, you just do things like that automatically. If I see a group of men walking down the street, I will automatically cross the road. Yeah, it is stuff like that. It is stuff about being more aware of walking around late at night. It is, you know, it is all that stuff about about why is it that we are still held responsible when we are at the end of being sexually assaulted or physically attacked? Why is it still something that women are dealing with instead of the perpetrators? Why aren't we looking at changing society so that that's not happening instead of, oh, we just need to be more careful. We shouldn't be having that extra drink. We shouldn't be wearing that short skirt. Fuck off. No. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's such but a- it's a fun show. <laughs> I I want to stress that, and I also. But I mean, want- but that's interesting. Like in that, like obviously, and this is, I guess, goes to the more broad thing we're talking about. And you, you saying it's a fun show. What's the capacity for comedy to deal with this in a way maybe that does make these ideas a little bit more accessible to people who might close their arms, you know, to them in the first place, right? Well, that is, you know, and isn't that kind of the idea with comedy full stop, really, that in an ideal world you can deal with things sometimes um, and people can be more comfortable listening to you deal with them because there will be a joke at the end of it. So hopefully we'll... 
you'll laugh a little and you'll think a little. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, and I mean, to that end, the, the show is a combination of comedy and documentary. So, obviously, gee, I'd be disappointed if people said it's not funny. I mean, you know, I've got some monologues in there. Um, you know, obviously I've tried to inject as many fucking jokes into that voiceover as I can. But, you know, alongside that, there are, you know, there's a segment on white ribbon and domestic violence where we film a session with Adam Goods and Clint Newton, you know, two incredible sportsmen going to talk to a bunch of young boys about violence against women. Um, but, you know, that's, there's also uh, a segment where I dress up as a man and try to urinate standing up. <laughs> um, there is, you know, so we talked to Deb Laurie, the first uh, female commercial pilot who had to sue Ansett for the right to do that. Uh, but in another episode, I have my G-spot enhanced, which involves uh, me interviewing a cosmetic surgeon while he is injecting something into my vagina. Uh, <laughs> I tap dance. <laughs> I tap dance with some elderly ladies. I box. Uh, you know, I. One of the most confronting moments for me was interviewing Julie Bishop and liking her. Right. Uh, you know, we talked to Anna Bly. We talked to Annabelle Crabb. We talked to stay-at-home dads. Uh, almost every show ends with Mick Malloy and I doing a battle of the sexes type challenge, which is <laughs> everything from ironing to trying to put some IKEA furniture together to firing a pistol. Uh, we talked to Alan Davies, the comedian, about various things. So, you know. I mean, we've really tried to mix it up. I mud wrestle, uh, no, sorry, I jelly wrestle Amanda Palmer. I hope to God there is something in there for everyone. <laughs> that actually sounds like there is literally something in there yeah, for everyone. Yeah, well, you know what? Sometimes I feel that if you just throw enough shit at the wall, something's hopefully going to stick. Oh, that's your philosophy. That's it, right there. I should have said that yeah, at the beginning. We got there, we nailed it. We did. That's what I always say to people. I say, I don't know which ones of these are good. I'll just show you heaps of them. Exactly. You pick the ones you like. The scattergun approach. But I was going to ask you, like when you're coming up with a show, I mean, is that a similar thing? Is it is it stuff that's just simmering away in your head until finally you think, oh, I need to say this out loud? Yeah, I think it is. Well, at least that's what I try for it to be. Like I think there's a difference. There was a – and I – I might need to talk to you first about this because I think you've got a clear idea. How you strike me, we talk in comedy about the idea of finding your voice, you know, and what people mean by that is like, you know, your perspective or what you're, you know, what you're going to drill in on, you know, what your point of view is, you know, your voice. Not specifically my irritating nasal twang. Well, I mean, funnily enough, though, you, you came, I think, earlier than most with both. Like, right. and I don't, I wonder if the two are connected in any way. Cause I think that Dave Hughes is another person who found his voice yes. very early, but also has a specific, like, you know, a, a voice. And I wonder if those two things Wouldn't aren't in some ways. would be great if we were married. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we had kids, the most irritating children in the world. Uh, yes. Um, but, you know, did you have a point in your career where you, felt like you were like you or did you feel like you had a a real individual point of view from the start or did that click at some point in your I journey I felt that it clicked because I needed to grow up a bit as mm. I say I just didn't know anything when I started doing stand up for the, so for those first few years I was just getting drunk and having sex right. and not really working much stuff out because yeah. I was just going <laughs> I work in a bar at night 
I don't have to be a sandwich hand anymore. So, you know, I was just having fun sure. and drinking until I passed out yeah, yeah. and just doing all of the stuff. Well, some people have the good sense to do in their teens, but I decided to do in my tw- – well, not decided, but did do in my 20s. Yeah. So I reckon the moment for me um, when I – kind of thought oh, all right this is this is my approach was when I did the one woman show King of the Road I had just mm-hmm. gotten back from overseas I'd found out I, I was adopted just before I went overseas and I came back and I wrote a show uh, which was about a disastrous trip, uh, which was about me finding out I was adopted on Christmas Day, which opened with me doing a tap dance to New York, New York. And there was something about that show and a friend of mine directed it. It was, uh, it was, like, it was basically like a fancy slideshow. I sort of did a tap dance, then I sat on a little chair and the slides came up and each story had a name. And that's when I really felt that I was doing something that was true to me I was like oh bang okay I can talk about shit that's happened to me and stuff that I feel really passionate about and you know there's an audience for it yeah so uh, I, I that's lo- when I guess I stopped thinking is this will other people find this funny and maybe I just went this is what I think is funny okay that's so a, hopefully that's people a will wonderful come to way that. of looking at it which is and I think that's so like there's a difference between trying to tell something that's funny like oh you know hopefully this will be funny or will they think this is funny or well, I'll tell it this way if they think it's funny and deciding you want to talk about something and then going how do I make this idea yes, funny exactly. and it is that that switch in mind some people might be surprised to hear this because I've been doing comedy for a long time, but I only consider that I really did that about six six years ago. And what was the moment? So, again, and I want to talk about this with you because I think it, it is particularly interesting because I think you have somebody who has done, done a great line in turning major terrible things that have happened into your life into Lemons wonderful into comedy. lemonade, <laughs> Will. That's what I excel at. But for me, it was one of those moments. Maybe... You know, I think in some ways that my life had been too charmed up to that point. You know, well, I have all my own issues and stories and whatever, but I never had really had had too much of a setback. Things had gone reasonably well for me most of my life, you know. And uh, I had my first major, you know, relationship breakup of my life. And it was four weeks before the Adelaide, you know, fringe started. So, like, I was in the middle of writing a show and then couldn't, you know, write that show and couldn't really get out of bed or, you know, do any of that. And then I got to Adelaide and the only thing that I want, we could talk about was this thing. Now, there are people who still message me, and I think that was 2009. There are people who still message me from Adelaide telling me they will never see me do comedy again because they came to that show in Adelaide. Wow. Like, I was a mess. Right. Like, I was up on stage having, like, you know, a crusty the crown gets a, crusty the crown gets a uh, ponytail and wears a black T-shirt and just fucking sobs on stage, you know, breakdown basically. But then I had to kind of pull that show together to be a show show. And so kind of in Brisbane, it started to like actually I I found how to kind of make it funny and tell the story and not make it pathetic. And then by Melbourne, it was actually, you know, like it was the first show that I ever did that I was like, okay, this is just me talking about something that's important to me. It wasn't a, a great show, but it never got to be a great show. And I stopped doing it. I never toured it because I didn't want to have to get up there every night and relive that moment for a year. I felt like that wasn't going to be a healthy thing for me to do. But it was that moment where I kind of switched. And then I think the last six shows I've done, I would happily say, you know, to varying degrees are, you know, my own voice and and what I think. And and anything before that, I 
cringe a little when I kind of have to watch it or see it or, or whatever. So it took me a very long time. I'd been doing comedy for 14 years, I guess, at that point before I really felt like, okay, now I've clicked into I'm doing what I do as opposed to an amalgam of what Fleety did and Morgan did and Tony Martin did and whoever else, you know, Billy Connolly did and whoever else, like, you know, had influenced me and was top of mind. So that role of like when something bad happens, the capacity to turn it into something funny. Now, a lot of your most memorable shows have come out of those things. When you're going through a thing like that, is it present in your mind? Like, no. is there, is, you know? No, there are very few times where I've certainly done something deliberately or even had the thought, I will get some material out of this. Right. One of the only times is when I did a routine about sleeping with a male escort. Right. Before I'd even made that phone yeah. call, you had I the thought, notebook out. I know I'm going to get some yeah. shit out of this. You're right. I'm claiming this phone call. I'm going to get a receipt oh, for yeah. every bit of this. Well, because- <laughs> and it cost me 650 bucks. So just as yeah. well, I got that back. Um, no. And what I did want to say to you, though, and it's a lesson I learned, is when you do take something that's happened to you, like the number of times people have said to me, oh, you must find doing those shows terribly cathartic. Yes. No, is always my response. Because if you haven't sorted the shit out to some degree before you start talking about it on stage, it's not very funny. Right. And when Which I found... those people in Adelaide can testify well, to. <laughs> and I, I had a similar experience when I found out I was adopted and I came back to Melbourne and I did a gig at the ESPY maybe four weeks after that Christmas day. I got up and talked about it to a room full of mystified silence. Right. And that was obviously because... I was still completely freaked out about it. Yeah. Um, you know, when I went on to talk about it 18 months later or something, yeah, that was fine. But, I mean, I did a show about my dad dying and that was, I would say, and my mum died while I was touring the show. So you really got two for the prize of one by the end of it, which was fantastic. <laughs> but... Um, but when I first started doing that show, it was uh, it was look. It's actually a show I'm proud of, and it got it certainly got laughs. But my God, it got more laughs by the end of the mm. tour because by the end of the tour, I was less fucked up about it. Right. So yeah, I certainly learnt that lesson as well. Um, and interestingly, I feel like over the last few years, say with the spirituality stuff, and even though there's still a lot of me in it, I mean, God damn it, I just lack imagination. So there's always going to be a lot, lot of me in it. But And like with this show about women, I feel that while it's always going to be my voice, for better or worse, I've sort of moved away a bit from always talking about myself quite as much. Although having said that, I'm about to go into a stand-up show and, you know, I had a terrible year last year and you will be hearing a bit about that. So. Yeah, so were you planning to do a stand-up show anyway or did you have a terrible year and went, okay, it's time for another show? Oh, <laughs> uh, I had a terrible year and was unemployed. Right. So that was just, uh, you know, like I remember when I finished uh, doing Spiritual Journey going into uh see Kevin White, our esteemed manager, and saying, Kev, I need a job. And Kev just turning his fist into a microphone and going, is this thing on? Meaning, <laughs> Lucy, get your ass back on the road. So right. I didn't bother asking him that question this time around. I just thought, yeah, looks like I'll be touring. 
And uh, fortunately, I have got a bit to say. Does working uh, is working a thing that you are conscious of always doing? Like, I mean, not just from a financial capacity, but is it something that you you like? I, I do need to be working. I do need to be doing a job. Or are you a person who feels comfortable to have you know a long stretch of time off and not not be working? I'm a bit of both. I'm right. really great at relaxing. I'm so good at doing nothing. Uh, like, as in literally nothing. Like, what do you do when you're not you know when you're not working? Oh. Oh, you know, n- nothing terribly interesting. No. I I do love doing yoga. I love that. The other flip side of it is I still love getting off my head. <laughs> um, but I'm much more expensive wine now. Uh, you know. Oh, well, that's why you need to work. Exactly. But, you know, movies, going yeah. out, just all that sort of nothing. Yeah. So you know, relaxing. Not like but you're, I'm, you're easier. You're, I'm, I'm pretty good at it. You're what are you like at relaxing? I'm not. I've not I'm, I'm not. That was my impression. I'm not. Yes. I'm not good at it. So is it – would you go crazy if you weren't working? I just like to work. Yeah. I mean, I like my work. Yeah. I mean, this is my work. Sure. You know, what I'm doing right now is my work. Yeah. And to be honest, I, you know, I, we've been looking for an excuse to catch up and have a chat for ages. And, and now we don't need to. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's ticked off the list. I mean, if I wasn't doing the project, we could have done this over a bottle of expensive wine. I know. Wine. Well, this is what's annoying. I was thinking that. Uh, so, um, okay. But I – the idea of um, but work I do itself. also really enjoy work, yes. and I am aware of the fact that I am aware of the fact that uh, if I haven't written something for a while, or if I haven't done something for a while, part of my brain starts to go. Mm, you need to be doing that now. It's and and I guess I'm I I feel like I'm lucky in that like I've got. I'm working on the stand-up show, but I kind of know what I want to do after that. And that's because it's something that, again, I can feel I'm starting to become very interested in. Right. So, yes. Do you worry about not being funny anymore? Like, as in, does that ever, like, do you, there's nothing, nothing worse. That's, That's the wrong way to put it. But sometimes, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen one of your absolute comedy idols and maybe they've been away from comedy for a while and they come back and they do it and it's just, it's moved on. It's it's moved on without them and and they're doing doing the same thing they always did and it's still, you know, if it was 10 years ago that it'd still be going great but whatever happened while they were away, it it moved on. Is that something that you... Christ, I like to hope that I would would know. (laughs) I would really like to hope that I'm self-aware enough that I would know. But yeah, that is that is a terrifying I think, Absolutely I think that's, terrifying I think that's why idea. I don't stop. I, if I'm yeah. honest about it, I kind of feel like my career, like in comedically, you're always like that guy in the Western running behind the train that's taking off. Yeah. And I feel if I just like look away for one moment, that train fucks off and then I'm just walking through the desert for the rest of my life. Um, I felt okay when I walked into this room. <laughs> I'm going to leave your hotel room and just bury my head in my hands and go, oh my God, what if I'm not funny anymore? Um, uh, yeah, I don't think that hasn't occurred to me. And I remember having ridiculous moments. Like when I did find out I was adopted, I remember turning to my best friend and going, oh, my God, now that I know I'm adopted, maybe I won't be funny. I mean, that didn't even make any sense. So I worried about it when it wasn't even logical. So, yeah, of course it's always there. I often have this conversation with the wonderful Denise Scott. Um, she and I often talk about when the jig is up. And uh, we think we will open a nice little bar somewhere. So, you know, 
Hospitality. That's my fallback. I like the idea of the, 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 the two of you having a nice little bath Funny somewhere. ladies. Right. You, you know, that's it. Come for a drink and a laugh, Will. We might not be able to pull a crowd anymore, but, you know, as I'm pouring you a beer, I'll come up with a quip or two. Did I ever tell you about the time I hired a male escort yeah, to pour beer? exactly. Oh, gee, that'll be a bit sad at that stage. But, yeah, well, do you worry about that? You do. Yeah. Do you I mean, really I'm, worry about well, I'm, it, though? I don't know. Worry. Yeah, I mean, no. I, well, I wouldn't say worry, but I, I, I'm constantly hyper aware of it, like as in, like, I, I, I do try to constantly feel like, is this thing that I'm doing now – better and more current and like even you know what sometimes even a that like i'll give you a really good example and Liam, i won't mind me telling this story he used to have a, a joke about drink driving you know and it was like very much when he first started doing comedy like 20 years ago and it was very much that sort of like you know along the theme of even though this isn't the joke but along the theme of like you know if you drink and drive you're a bloody idiot but if you make it home alive you're a bloody legend you know that yeah, sort of yeah. like standard sort of you know and I remember there was just a time where like it was like one week he told that joke and everyone laughed and then the next week he told that joke and everyone was like, no, no, we don't think drink driving is funny anymore. You know, and it wasn't like the joke had changed or, you know, society's attitude had changed. And there are certain, I think that like, you know, the way that I talk, I'm much more aware of like, you know, the jokes that I make. I think that, that uh, I think that, it used to be fun to be mean as a comedian because people weren't mean. People came to comedy to hear people say things that you couldn't hear people say in other places, right? But now the world's mean. Mm. Like the overwhelming thing online is people trying to make the meanest, quickest joke about things. So I'm just not fucking interested in doing what everybody else is doing. I'd rather try to write a show that's like, you know, takes the complete opposite to that. And it's like, I'm confused and I don't know about this thing and here's what I think, but maybe it's wrong because of this and explore, you know, an area of grey rather than this black and white area that everybody see. I mean, so I think that you I try to constantly be like, you know, counter. You don't want to be running with the pack, sure. I guess. You want to try to be. It's so hard though because when you say, is it current enough? It's kind of like, aren't you always juggling what is current but where you are at as a person as well? Oh, definitely. And I think it's much more about where you fit into, like it's not about you being, like there's nothing worse than like trying to change to suit the, like I mean if three years ago I'd suddenly go, oh, I'll get a cardigan and talk about jam. Yeah. Like it's not. No, it's more about where do I fit in and what's my role within this kind of giant mess? What, you know, what do I have that's interesting to people or unique to people? And I um, find that getting older that's interesting as well because as I say, I am not on Twitter and I'm not on Facebook and I absolutely know that there is a whole world out there that I don't know that much about. So I have to find a way of talking about things where I'm not lying about that, but I also don't want to be, oh, I'm just so fucking old now. I'm just so fucking middle-aged. I don't know about that shit anymore, you know. Right. So that's and it's kind hard. of interesting too. And it's also hard. I mean, not hard. Mind you, I'm confronted with that when I dress in the morning. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> is this a little young or have I just given up caring? It's just, you know, it's that fine line. There is a freedom in giving up caring as well, though, right? That's one of the great moments in your life. And when I say giving up caring, I don't mean that, like, you know. But there is that point where you start going, ah, I don't give a shit what other people think about, like, you know, what I look like or what I'm going to wear. I'm just going to wear something that I think is comfortable or that I like or that, you know, that moment in your life. There's something nice about that. 
again, giving up. it's a fine line. It's kind. It's kind of like well, there's a yeah, there's a difference between giving up entirely. And like, yes, <laughs> and you know, there's a difference between feeling comfortable enough in your own skin right. that you don't care. You know, like I can wear this dress and think I like this dress. Too bad if you don't. And waking up and just putting on nothing but articles with elastic waists. Do you know what I'm saying? What you need saying. to make an effort. Sometimes I do cross that line a little. Sometimes it's three o'clock in the afternoon and I'm still in my pajamas and I'm like, you know what? You could have had a shower. But you're in your own <laughs> home. That's okay. I mean, if I'm not wearing a bra in my own home, that's my business. Yeah, it's true. But the day I leave my home and I'm not wearing a bra, then I'm in trouble. Let's get to the big stuff. We've talked about work enough, I reckon. Let's talk about the big stuff. Why, why are we here? What do you think? Oh, I haven't got the slightest idea. And yeah. I think anyone who says they do is simply talking out of their ass. I like that. I, I mean, that's a, to me, that's... The thing that doesn't get said anywhere in there, near enough is that, like, this idea – everyone seems to be looking for answers. But the thing that we seem to get wrong is that people think there's one set of answers that will fix everything for you. There isn't. There isn't. And the only people I am truly suspicious of, you know, having done a show on spirituality or whatever and, and, and read a lot of stuff about religion and having had a very Catholic upbringing, is I am just suspicious of anyone who says – not only have I got the answer, but I'm absolutely right and you're absolutely wrong. Right. Because that just makes no sense. If you say, look, I think this is the answer and it's working for me and I am not going to judge you, you can come up with any answer you like, then go in peace, my friend. Yeah, it's my uh, – my, uh, if I'm arrogant enough to try to amend – uh, some of the major religious scriptures of all time. Because the, the, the argument that people make, and this is a very, because we're having this conversation, uh, people will hear this about a week later, but we're having it the day after a bunch of people have been killed uh, for making a satirical magazine. Now, there's broader issues about that, but we won't get bogged in right now. But it's, it, you know, for anyone, I think that crosses a line, right? Mm. And it, people say, well, if we get rid of religion, you know, there's so many good things that there are about religion as well. And, Yes. Like, you know, there are things at the heart of all kind of beliefs and that's why they've become big things. You know, the golden rule that it is in most, you know, of those kind of religious, you know, the, the, the version of do unto others as you would have yeah. them do unto you. It's, it's, it's a pretty good rule. I would amend it slightly if I could be arrogant enough. Please. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But remember, what might be right for you may not be right for some. Yes. Because that's a very good way of putting it. Right? Treat others as you would like to be treated, but don't expect that your way is going to be right for them. Yes. Be happy enough that it's right for you. Now, the first bit's from the Bible and, you know, from the Holy Buddha, and the second bit's from the theme song to different strokes. But it's still. Find a it good, where you can, Find Will. it where you can. <laughs> but isn't that kind of what you're saying? Like, take bits and. Like, find. Re, so, what did you get out of doing the show about, you know, the spirituality show? What did you feel like you learned? What What were you kind of. What, what was your takeaway from that experience? I guess. I went into it a lot more cynical than when I came out of it, to be honest, because especially, you know, I mean, I still have a lot of anger towards the Catholic Church, right. but I can't deny that I hung out with some amazing nuns. Um, I met some people in Byron Bay and I thought what they believed made about as much sense as worshipping hair in a can. Right. I met some truly, <laughs> you know, some people who had some pretty crazy ideas. Right. But 
I came out of the whole thing going, if you are sincere about what you believe in and if that is getting you through, and as I say, you're not hurting anyone and you're not judging anyone else, then knock yourself out. The right to swing your fist stops in another person's face. Basically, I just think we're all just doing our best. Right. I really do. I think most people are just fucking doing their best. Right. You can believe whatever imaginary nutbaggy thing you want to believe as long as, you know, you're not shooting somebody else to say that your thing's right. Pretty much. Yeah. And, you know, and the only other thing I came out of it with – I mean, by that stage, I'd already done quite a lot of, you know, meditation or whatever. I I was even more convinced after doing the Vipassana stuff that uh, meditating is ace. I I would recommend, I think the world would benefit from everyone meditating. What is it that you feel like you get out of the meditation process? I think most of us are at the mercy of our minds. Uh And so I think meditation gives you some kind of insight into how your mind works. And it gives you an ability to be able to step away from some of the more destructive thoughts that you have. We all get stuck in those horrendous mental loops about one thing or or another. And meditation at its best, I think, can at least give you some kind of, a bit of clarity when it comes to all that stuff. And I think the more we realise that there's some crazy shit that goes on in our heads and goes on in everyone's heads, if we all got a bit better at dealing with that, I am naive enough to think that the world would be a better place. So I'm always going to be an advocate of meditation. The other thing that um, doing the show made me realize is that so many, I think one of the great things that a lot of religions have, whether it's Hinduism or the very little I know about Aboriginal spirituality, is this idea that absolutely everything is connected. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Even if that's not true, I think that's a really nice way to live your life. Right, yeah. I mean, well, because things are by their nature connected anyway. Yes. Like even if like there's not some grand plan for it all to be yes. connected, we are by the very nature living in a, in a society. You know, the dickhead that you might be beeping your like horn at in front of you who may have like gone the wrong way because they something really bad just happened in their life. Maybe they're just a dickhead. But they might be the person who buys the milk in your shop or they might be the person who comes to your yeah. show or – or whatever. You know, you never know how we're connected to each other in some ways. Absolutely. Have you ever had any of those sort of revelations through – the only times I've ever had that sort of sense have been through, I guess, like hallucinogenic sort of drug experiences. Did you ever go that way in any of you – like – in any of your drinking years, did you ever like you know do mushrooms or do one of those things? Oh, where you, kinda... you name it, I've pretty right. much given it a crack. Yeah. But I will say the most uh, full-on experience I had was disappointingly completely sober, and it was I do um, <clears throat> mention this in the in the book that I wrote, uh, "Drink, Smoke, Pass Out." But um, I I don't know about you. With in fact, I'm going to ask you this before I tell the sure. story. How are you, because we have talked about this briefly over the years, um, in terms of anxiety about performing? Uh, I'm not anxious about performing. But Um, were you in the past? I guess I probably was, yeah. There was definitely times. I mean, I've I've been everything over the journey. Like, And sometimes when you're whatever you are now, it's hard to remember what you were. Sure. You know? I think years ago you and I had a conversation Mm. about anxiety. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it sounds like. Would be the case. I was at probably there was. I think there was a period of time, especially when I was very busy and I wasn't doing work that I necessarily, you know, my heart was in. That suddenly, I think that probably 
fed back into me going, you know, that I'm anxious about performing. And, you know, there was probably a time... You know what? Actually, this is... You're right. You're absolutely right. And this is a classic example of when you live, you know, with yourself for a couple of years, the new you, you forget that the old you ever existed, you know? Mm. Um, because I think you're absolutely right. But because I had a... A couple of years ago, and it was that when I started to do set list. I don't know if you've ever done that show. Do you know that show? I know set of list. Yeah. So for people who don't know, it's a it's a improvised stand up comedy show. So the conceit is that you get up on stage and you're going to perform a stand up comedy set, but you don't know what any of the topics are, and they're outrageous topics, and they appear to the audience at the exact same time they appear to you on a screen. So, you know, the, one of the topics might be something like, and it's an outrageous offer. So it'll be like Jehovah's Rapist will be the topic. And you're just meant to improvise stand-up as if that is indeed your set list. And so I started doing that show and people were nervous about it. And But what I realized when I started doing that show was like, I right now I'm as, I know more in my life than I've ever known. And I've got some things right already. Things have gone okay already. But I am much better prepared for everything right now because I know everything. I've had every experience I've already had right now. The only thing that will get in my own way here will be me, like, you know, just be in the moment mm. and accept the idea that if, if you fail, you will learn something amazing from that and you will just go on. So now I've started doing these fully improvised hours. You know, I just do it, it like it's improvised from start to finish. And when I first started doing them, I had to make that in my head. People would say to me, oh, do you have some prepared material up your sleeve? I said, no, that would be a disaster. Because the minute something went wrong, instead of digging your way through the wrong thing into the great thing, mm. you would go to the emergency, you know, uh, life jacket, you know, that you, you had already prepared. Yeah. So you've got to kind of give yourself over to the idea of, you know, that if I fail, maybe I'll learn even something better from that than I would have learned from just, you know. And that's only in the last two years. And now I believe I've been like that forever. <laughs> and I say go with it. <laughs> I say go with it. Um, wow. Because I'm just listening to that and thinking, yeah, I would find that terrifying. I would find that terrifying. I think that I, I have become – I've got this theory. Uh, Celia Pacola and I were discussing this the other day that I think comedians uh, – certainly no, – I can't speak for all comedians, obviously, but I, I think that there is something inside comedians that choose comedy. Like we all have a joke in our arsenal to say when people say, oh, comedy is the hardest job in the world. We all have a self-deprecating joke that yep. says, no, it's not, yep. blah, 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 blah. But I think that we all secretly kind of like the idea that people think what we do is terrifying. And there's something about amping it up to be more terrifying that kind of excites me. You know, I, it, I'm just like, how can I make this harder? It's like the idea of doing, I'm not doing one new show you at the festival. You are a crazy motherfucker. I'm doing two new shows. I'm just telling shows. you that. <laughs> you are out of your mind. <laughs> You are, to quote Ethel Chop, Gaga in the Meninges. Uh, I take my hat off to you because the, the ridiculous thing is I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, that sounds awful. Should I do that? Right. Should I try that? So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there's some truth in that too. Okay, so... Uh, I was dealing with anxiety. Yes. That's that's yes. where we started from. Um, I used to have crippling, crippling anxiety before mm -hmm. I went on stage. And when I say that, I mean from the moment I woke up in the morning, I would be terrified. Oh, okay. So right. it was really uh -huh. making touring 
very difficult. Well, a nightmare. Yeah. Yes, essentially. And then, of course, as soon as the show was over, I would get hammered yeah. because I could really relax. Mm. And boy, did I relax. Right. So. And then uh, the next day, that even helps to really calm out the anxiety I tend to oh, find. Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, so then you're Waking you're up uh, hungover in a strange place. And yeah, just, it was a really great way to live. <laughs> so I was trying to get a handle on that. And this is when I had started meditating. And this was when I was going down the whole, uh, yeah, just dealing with the anxiety was a big part of why I got interested in all of that, I Mm -hmm. think. Anyway, I was in Brisbane. Uh, It was still a a big issue, the anxiety. And so more than ever in my life, I tried to do that whole being in the moment thing. Like, you know, look, I am not an Eckhart Tolle fan, but um, I was in Brisbane. I bought The Power of Now because it was sort of the only book I could get my hands on. And look, there's a lot of good stuff in there. I mean, I would say all the good stuff is from Eastern philosophy, but, you know, I'm sure... But if you don't have time to flip through Eastern philosophy, yep, you know, <laughs> and you're in an airport, you go to guy, <laughs> you're in an absolutely, you're picking up the Herald Sun, and you think <laughs> I wouldn't mind also a couple of summaries of Eastern philosophy. Go for yeah. it. Uh, don't buy conversations with God, but yes, do buy the Power of Now if you feel like that. Anyway, so I was reading that, and I was, I was trying to do. I'd never tried so hard to be in the moment as a way of just trying to get a handle on not just freaking out. And one morning I was eating my fruit salad and I was looking at this passion fruit. Everything I say from here on in is going to sound like a pile of shit. I'm just warning you of that now. No, I'm I'm ready. Wanky or insane, take your pick. Just be in the moment, Jude. I am doing my best. (laughs) But, of course, I am listening to myself thinking that sounds bad. I was eating my fruit salad and I looked at the passion fruit like I had never looked at it before. Mm. And I know that sounds insane. And it was like an acid trip. Right. And it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. That lasted for a few minutes. Cut to the next day, something I was doing every day to just try and keep sane was I was walking through the Brisbane Botanical Gardens, which mm-hmm. are beautiful. They are beautiful, uh, yeah. And Brisbane in winter is beautiful. It's sunny. It's great weather. Uh, and exactly the same thing happened again, except this time it lasted for about an hour. And I, it was like I was on a drug. And it was just like everything I saw, every blade of grass, everything was incredible. And the other thing that happened was I felt like I was a part of something. Right. I remember walking through a market and there was some music playing and I felt like everyone there was – it was almost orchestrated. I remember walking through the gardens and seeing a father playing with his little girl and throwing a ball. I picked up and threw him the ball. And I absolutely felt – that everything was completely perfect and I was part of something much bigger than me and that we were all meant to be here. I cannot believe I have said all of that because I haven't said it out loud very often. I've written it down, Mm. but I haven't said it very often. And then towards the end of that hour, I absolutely started to panic. Right. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I might might never come out of this. I might never come out of this. And why on earth would that have been a problem anyway? I was having a ball. Uh But uh, it's amazing how your mind automatically goes to what it knows, even if what it knows is fucked. That's much safer. So, yeah, that was – and that was years ago. That's that, Yeah, okay. And, and do you then – does meditation give you an opportunity to 
kind of reconnect? Is it like you're revisiting that space or that no. idea or just no, no? I've never had an experience like that since. And okay. I mean, I think interesting that everyone has those moments that might not be quite like that. But you know, whether it's I don't know, you're giving birth, whether you're at the uh, maybe you're in an accident. You know, I think we all have moments where we are so in the moment I that it's incredible that you get lost somehow. I don't necessarily uh, believe in – well, I don't know what to believe when it comes to those sort of things. You know, people who've experimented with the drug DMT, I don't know if you have followed much of what, what DMT is, but DMT, uh, uh, there is something in your body that gets naturally released when you die – and they think it oh, explains okay. a lot of the visions. And yes. it's like ayahuasca. A yes, lot of people was, do ayahuasca yes. and stuff. And it's a very similar thing. And a lot of people have very similar visions. And, yep. you know, there's that feeling of you connecting with, oh, this world melts away and you see how interconnected yep. it kind of all is. I think there are moments and, like, that it's almost like the universe gives us a glimpse into yes. something else. And, like, you know, it can be – you know, that moment when a car nearly hits you or like you nearly fall off a ladder. It's almost like the for a second you go, oh, yeah, right. It gives yes. you a real sense of like you're in a moment. I think often that's you what – You forget yourself. That's, I think that's what – My favourite Radiohead quote, um, and I'm not a big person for quoting song lyrics, but this is I, – I love this lyric so much. Uh, for a minute there, I lost myself. And I, I always think when I'm talking about being on stage and somebody tries to explain to me – like Barry Humphreys always had that line of, you know, when he walked on stage as Dame Edra in front of 3,000 people, what's it like? And he was like, ah, oh, alone at last. That's not quite how I feel about it. But there is something about – for a, for a minute there I lost myself. It means two things to me. Firstly, I think there was a part of my life where I did lose the idea of who I was as a person. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I was what other people, you know, thought I was or, yep. you know, thought I should be. Um, but the second thing is there. there's nothing better than being in that moment on stage where you are so connected oh, with this yes. group of strangers that you're not yourself. Like you've lost yourself because you have become – even though you're the person on stage, we're all doing this together. This is all of us perfectly, you know, connected in this fucking moment. And yeah. you do. You lose yourself like into the world, like into the room and, and it's – that's my like. That's when I again. To me, that feels like well, that moment where you glimpse it, that. Yeah. You know. And I agree with you. And I think you can be touring and you cannot experience that. You know, twenty-five shows mm. out of twenty-six. But right. on that twenty-six shows, something will happen, and it is something. And I feel like it's this magic area between the audience and you because it is as much a part of the audience oh, of course. as it is you. Yep. And yes, you are all – and that's why live is so amazing right. because nothing will be able to replicate that particular evening. What do you think happens when we die? Um, I think zippity-doo-dah, zippity – you know. Yep, me I too. mean, I like to think, uh, hey, man, there's uh, – we're all energy and that energy goes on in some form. But, you know, I'll be a tree or whatever. But that's that's it. Yeah, I, I certainly have had, uh, you know, psychedelic drug experiences where I, I felt like I got a sense of like death and the world was spinning around and then the world slowed. Like you had this feeling that the world slowed down and then you, that you kind of just gently drifted out and then it sped up again and went on without you. And I actually found that a very comforting 
thought to have. Mm. But I mostly think I'll probably just be dead and they'll bury me and I'll rot. Yeah. But I won't care because I'll be dead. Well, that's right. <laughs> it's like when people ask you the question, which I'm sure you've had to, how do you want to re- be remembered? I don't give a shit. Give I'm a not going to be around. I mean, I don't give a shit how I'm remembered. I don't give a shit how... Like what you do in my body. Like if you like if you decide that we can stop pedophiles fucking kids if by fucking like my dead body when I'm dead, stuff me and let everyone have a fucking go. Yeah. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I'm dead. Well it's like I you know, God. Let's help not go them. with that, they, by the well, way. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> sure. That's out there now. But you know, I'm doing that thing of donating my organs or whatever. Yes. I'm sure the doctors will simply laugh. Yeah. But you we know. should we'll donate ours for study rather than for Exactly. <laughs> but the thought is there. And I told someone this and they went, Oh, but don't you know that when you do that, you know, the medical students they do things with your bodies and yeah. they'll have you having sex with other bodies. And I'm cool. like, I don't I'm care. Because that's it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That, I mean, I agree with that, but it. I think some people find that a very confronting. If you believe that once you're dead, he's, I think. I think that this is what people do. If you believe that once you're dead, you are dead. Then, why do you do what you do every day? What is it that just gets you out of bed and gets you to do what you do? If you think that once you die, you're dead. But why would that change if I didn't think that? Well, because I think that a lot of people, like, well, I you think know, if I'm a good person, yeah, I'll go to I heaven. will go to heaven. And that, I mean, you know, there is some sort of like, you know, we will go to church and I'll, you know, do this and I'll raise my family and I'll blah, 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 or whatever the mythology that they've bought into. It might be if I earn enough money, then, you know, I'll cheat death. Or if I, you know, like people, do, you know, kind of funnel it into very different ways, their, you know, our own kind of internal mythology. Some sure. people argue that if you don't believe in a God or being judged how do you decide your morality how do you decide well, what you're going to do with your day well that is a very sad indictment of humanity i can't help thinking that oh, we, I, I it, agree you know that we would need a god or i uh, know oh, all you need is empathy i would have thought well, to be yeah, nice to other that's, people that's but, yeah. pretty much what i think too yeah. and i guess the older i get the more uh what i think gets simpler and simpler and i guess what gets me through most days is trying to you know, give stuff a crack. Right. Uh, I would like to be at the end of my life and think that I – most things I wanted to try, I've tried. I would like to think that most things I've tried, I've tried sincerely and tried to do well and that I've tried to be a nice person. I don't think I've got much more than that. That seems like a pretty nice way to end, to be honest, Jude. Um, can Go I... in peace, Will. Right. <laughs> Hang on, we've still got plugs to go. <laughs> uh, now, uh, when when is your television show going to be on? February, February the, and I, you can expect me to be that articulate yep. on the ABC, February the 11th. February begins, 11th? I believe. Do you know what night of the week that is? I think it could be that crazy Wednesday comedy night. Oh, it's Wednesday night comedy. I think it is. Okay, well, that's brilliant. Look out for that. And where does your stand-up show go? Are you going... I'm going every which way but loose. I kick off in Canberra on the weekend of the 12th or the 13th of March and then Melbourne Comedy Festival. But I'll be going everywhere. And where where are you playing at the Melbourne Comedy Festival? I believe I'm at the Arts Centre. Oh, hello. I'm going somewhere classy. La de da. Well, Judith, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. And... uh, you can't hit Judith up on Twitter or Facebook. That's what you normally do. These are the plugs we normally do. Yeah. So hit, hit Judith up on Twitter. 
So I'm nah. just gonna, so I'm going to tell you this. Please come and see my show, the last night of the Willuminati tour at the Sydney Opera House Concert Hall, January the nineteenth. Uh, we are filming it all for a special. It is a Monday night, and we are doing two shows in the concert hall, so there are some tickets still available. <laughs> but get them. But get them. That Buy would, them. Go that, and that see That would be him. really cool. And then my free will tour starts March 2 in uh, Adelaide, Adelaide, uh, Brisbane, and then Melbourne. Can but, I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. Are you ever going to do a show where Will is not in the title? I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't necessarily uh, – like, look, I've done it 20 times now, so it's kind of one of those things that – and people – it's one of those things with like a show name. For me, it's just a very practical thing to be able to yeah. do because as you know, I mean, what, the reason your shows are so great is that you actually wait until you have something to talk about and then do a show about it. Hopefully, hopefully. Whereas this I could just be the one where it fucks up. Whereas I just book a fucking venue and then I have to write a show. Sure. And so normally in August I get a call from like of our course. manager yeah. when I'm halfway through one tour and haven't even thought about next year, going, "Hey, uh, the registration for Adelaide needs to be in. What's your show called?" Yeah. And so, so just giving it some generic name that says to people, "This is a, this will be a different show to last year's show." It's been very easy to in, – instead of having to do that thing where you call your show 18 Things I Learned From My Dad yeah. and then you get to March and you're like, Dad only taught me four things. Yeah. I'm going to have to pad a lot of this show out. And look, I mean, Will is obviously a name you can do that with. Whereas, you know, if I, I could call a show Hey Jude and then I'm all out. I mean, Judith is just not a name that lends itself to that. Jude, uh, no, like anything uh, anything that rhymes with Jude. Nude? Anything that had nude in the title? Yeah. Rude? Yeah, well. Rodney Jude? <laughs> Maybe that's where we should end the show. That's going to be my next show, Rodney Jude. Uh, Judith Lucy, thank you very much. Thank you, Will. Thank you.